visitor here this morning. We wonder what's going on this morning. Uh, been our youth pastor here for five years, and then for seven, seven years before that, and and uh, twelve of the last thirteen years he's been with us, and has been an important part, uh, more important part probably of life together. Has been Jamie and uh, the blessings he has been. But Brad is bringing us the message this morning, uh, and. I think as a staff, we are super excited to hear this word because we have heard Brad talk about this passage uh, over and over again. It's, it's his heartbeat, and we are excited to hear what God has for us. So, Brad, thank you. Thank you, Dave. I am also excited to see what God has in store. <laughs> Just a quick of advice, never agree to preach your first sermon the week after a middle school retreat. <laughs> I uh, have little left, um, but I will try to bring it to you today. Man, this feels weird. Usually I come up here at the end of the service. I've never been up here this early. Um, but I'm excited to share. I'm excited to... Um, on this last Sunday, uh, just offer something. And when Dave and Mark and Goody uh, came to me and said, hey, would you, would you maybe like to preach your last Sunday? I thought, well, well yeah. <laughs> That'd be awesome. What do you mean to preach about? They were like, whatever you want. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> they were like, yeah, just whatever. I was like, you don't want me to do like one of the Psalms for the Psalm series? No, you... Just do whatever you want. And that sounds great. <laughs> but it is, it, is, it is challenging. And I spent a lot of time over the last uh, three weeks thinking about what I would want to share today. And I was in the parlor. I was just sitting there and praying and asking God to give me some wisdom, give me some discernment, um, to help me figure out what I could offer and looking over my shoulder was Ed Henniger. Maybe you remember Ed, Sam's grandfather, Becky's dad, uh, former preacher here and pastor for many, many years, and his portrait hangs in the parlor. And I thought, what would Ed Henniger do <laughs> his last Sunday? And I remembered hearing about Ed's last Sunday, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Ed's last Sunday, he memorized a book of the Bible and just presented that. And church loved it so much, they painted a picture of him. <laughs> and they hung it up in the parlor. And I thought, I could memorize a book of the Bible. Maybe I'll get a painting. And what, what book, I think he did like Ephesians, right? Yeah, it's like five chapters. That's nothing. Six chapters. <laughs> what if I memorize something even longer? I'll definitely get a painting. Uh, maybe like a statue. I'm not saying I want you to build a statue of me. I'm just saying we should be open to where the Spirit leads. <laughs> Especially if the Spirit is leading to a bronze 30-foot statue but no, I decided I would, I would memorize a book of the Bible. And I'd, I'd go for a little bit more than six chapters. So uh, settle in, uh, and I would like to recite to you 
uh, all 29 chapters of First Chronicles. <laughs> now, it may look like I'm reading, but I'm not. I just, I have this sheet of paper that says, you can do it, as an encouragement for me. So if I look down a lot, I'm just reading, you can do it. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Kel, Mahalalah, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. The sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, Kyle, Japheth. The sons of Japheth. Gomer. Sorry, sorry, I'm just, I'm kidding. I did not memorize. I did not memorize First Chronicles. Uh, I tried to, but it's just the list of names. A, and most of them, Magog, Meshach. You don't hear a lot of Meshachs these days. Ashkenaz. Really, that would just be fun if I just read the book of First Chronicles. Uh, but I'm not, of course. I'm kidding. Um, this was a joke. Because I do a lot of jokes around here. I have a lot of fun at Black Knoll. In fact, I think my job is the most fun job um, of anybody here. And I have had a lot of fun in this church. And before I get to my word from the Lord, I just need to get a couple of things off my chest. I need to confess a few things. First, I need to confess that I like putting random things around the church. And you may have seen things over the years. Uh, the first thing, uh, I've got some slides here, uh, is a painting or a picture that a couple of our students uh, gave me for my birthday. I don't know where they found it because I thought that we had gotten rid of all those. <laughs> Jamie loves this. Jamie loves this painting so much. And this has been in several rooms in the church. Uh, for the last seven months, it's been in Pastor Mark's office. Because before I met Pastor Mark, I put that up in his office. And he never took it down. And that's when I realized we hired the right guy for this job. One of my favorite things for the last several years uh, that I've done here at Blacknell is uh, I love grabbing a random student or two and, and going to a thrift store and trying to find the most random thing there. And then for us to come back and hide it in the church. So for example, uh, just recently this year, I had um, a couple things. You can, you can go back. Don't go to that one just yet. Um, that's coming. Uh, just recently, uh, I had a couple of students, because uh, they still go to the church, I will not use their names. We'll call them um, Ben Kronstad and Eric Hayes. Uh, <laughs> so Ben, Eric, and I went to a thrift store and found a couple of things. And the first thing we found was this like six-foot-tall scarecrow that uh, we placed in the window overlooking the Perry Street entrance. Or, I'm sorry, the Iredell Street entrance. And it stayed for like a week. Never made it to a Sunday service before it was discovered. It was awesome. You'd come walking into church and there was this giant scarecrow hanging over you. Uh, and the second thing, and I feel a little bad about this one. Uh, the second thing we discovered was this. 
That is a uh, dolphin figurine that we put in our church nativity scene <laughs> the first week of December, and it stayed until the last Christmas Eve service before it was discovered. Now, I say before it was discovered. I'm certain it was discovered before that by children who look at stuff like nativity scenes. And I, I bet some of you were driving home from church this year during Advent, and your kids said, Mom, Dad, you'll never believe there's a dolphin in the nativity scene. And you were probably like, don't lie. Don't make up stories. We are at church. Church is not a place for lying. They weren't lying. Uh, that was in our nativity scene for, for five weeks. Um, I love doing stuff like that. Um, Zeke Epps, uh, I think, was the first person that I was uh, discovered the joy of hiding stuff around church when Zeke and I discovered uh, at a thrift store the book Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter <laughs> and decided that that book belonged in Alan's library. <laughs> and so we went in while Alan was there, and I asked Alan some very serious theological questions. And Alan was like, oh, I'll tell you all about that. And Zeke then like slid the book in when Alan wasn't looking, stayed for a couple of weeks until Alan comes into my office holding it and says, I feel like this might be you. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Alan. I love these little Easter eggs of hiding stuff. Um, and maybe my favorite wasn't an Easter egg that was really hidden. It was one that was very much out in the open for the last like, five years. Several years ago, our communications director at the time, Mary, uh, kind of built a new website for Blacknell. And she asked all the staff to create a bio. And Tanya and I, after staff meeting, we were in our office, we were like, gosh, we don't want to make a new bio. We don't want to, nobody likes writing about themselves. And so I said to Tanya, I was like, I'm just going to write a joke bio, and I'm going to send it to Mary just for fun. And so I wrote this like, bio that was clearly kind of tongue-in-cheek as a joke, and I sent it to Mary. And then like 30 minutes later, I'm walking down the hall, and Mary says, Brad, I, I got your bio. I loved it. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I just posted it. I was like, on the website? <laughs> she's like, yeah, it's great. And so I, I have to confess that I had no intentions of this being my serious bio, but for the last five years, this is what people see when they come. I'll just read that. Brad's job entails lots of frisbee golf and a good bit of Bible study. If asked, Brad would tell you that the parables are where it's at, and he can often be found rereading Mark 4. Brad enjoys tea from his tiny child-sized teapots and lightly roasted Norwegian-style coffee. He is also a slightly above-average dart player, currently playing on Durham's best team, the Darty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, that's my favorite part, just the oh. Oh, and he's married to Jamie. Her value to Blacknell far exceeds her husband's. I know, right? To clap for Jamie. Seven years that was on our website. We had visitors who were like, what church should I go to in Durham? I'll just go here. And they read that and they went, what is wrong with these people? What is this? Child-sized teapots? Darty rotten scoundrels? Season 76 champions. Let's see if there's anything else I want to confess. Uh, Tanya and I, when we were in the office together, never did any work. We just watched funny YouTube videos and had a whole lot of fun. Um, 
gosh, uh, she was wonderful. Still is. Um, anything else? Oh, if anybody was ever visiting the church and needed to use the bathroom and asked me where the bathroom was, <laughs> I would always take them down to the nursery hall. And in one of the nursery rooms, there's a bathroom that has a toilet that's this high. It's like, it's like this. And I would always make visitors use that bathroom. Okay, it feels good to get stuff off your chest, Dave. Whew. Confession works. Um, also, I asked our students to give me a list of random phrases that I would weave into the sermon. I don't think I'm going to do it. I think it's, it would be pretty hard to, to seamlessly weave in the phrase, the British are coming. Or wowzers, trousers, Anna. I'm not going to do that. I might, I might do it. I'm not. There will be a dance break later, because that was one of the phrases. Um, anything else I need to get off? Oh, I'm currently wearing a belt buckle with my name on it, because a student dared me to. He said, you won't wear that the first time you preach, because it will be the last time you preach. Um, but I do want to offer a word today. Um, and I don't have a lot to say. At least I'm not sure. Um, but I have been wrestling with one scripture. And, and my bio gave a little clue to it. Um, uh, I've been obsessed with the book of Mark for the last several years. And uh, mostly uh, Mark chapter 4. And I think I've been working on this short sermon for a while, and it's still not complete. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where I'll go with this, but I'm trusting um, that the Father has brought this word. So read along with me, um, starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. This is the word of the Lord. So this is not the seed parable that you often think about from Mark chapter 4. Um, This is the second parable about a sower in Mark 4. The first is the more well-known parable. Um, uh, It's Jesus' first of uh, his parables in in Matthew and Mark. Um, I think it's a a super important parable. And I think to understand the second parable of the sower, we have to start with the first. And this is a parable uh, I think most of us probably know. Jesus tells the story of a farmer who goes uh, out and starts sowing seed. And as he sows seed, some of the seed falls along the path and birds come and they eat it. Some of the seeds fall amongst rocks and without much soil, the seed springs up quickly, but with shallow roots, it dies pretty quickly. Other seed falls amongst the thorns and the weeds and the life is choked out of the plant before it can uh, grow to its full potential. But some seed falls on good soil and that seed produced fruit 
and lots of fruit. Then Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear. This is the first of Jesus' spoken parables uh, in the book of Mark, and it's one of the few parables that Jesus gives an explanation for. When his disciples come to him and say, yeah, we don't, we don't have a clue what you're talking about, Jesus helps them out. Jesus explains it to them because as he says in verse 13, if you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand any of them. The parable of the sower is very important. The farmer, Jesus says, sows the word. And when Jesus says the word, I, I tend to have a, kind of a Johannian uh, kind of understanding of what that means. I don't know. Is that a word, Johannian, from the book of John? In John chapter 1, Jesus, uh, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And we know from John that this word of God, this logos, is Jesus, God in the flesh, uh, who, as Eugene Peterson says, moved into our neighborhood. Um, Jesus says this, the farmer sows the word, and, and I think the word is Jesus. I, I think here, at the beginning of this parable, we see that God is both the sower and the very thing being sown, the word of God, Jesus Christ. The word has been sown in the coming of Christ to our world. And here, I think we begin to understand the main point of this parable. Jesus has showed up into a dying, broken world, and he is doing work. Jesus is present, and he is working to bring about his kingdom here and now. I think that's the main point of this parable that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sown into our broken, dying world, is doing the work of restoration. When Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is at hand and he plants that flag, the kingdom is here and now, he means it. And if we're honest, maybe we wonder whether or not it's actually true. Maybe we wonder whether or not God is actually at work in our world, in our lives. How often have we cried out with the psalmist, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you and where is this kingdom that you have promised Where are you when tragedy happens? When children are ripped from their parents' arms in floods like we saw this week in Kentucky? Where are you when disease takes away our loved ones? When even our little ones have to fight for their lives? Where are you when even your people, your church, hate one another? Or the same division and tribalism that is destroying our world destroys churches? Where are you when hate seems to win more often than love? When fear reigns? When sadness and despair is all around us? Where is he? He is working. He is here working right now. 
even in a church that's trying to figure out how do we keep going when so many people have left or are leaving. He is at work. The question isn't whether or not he's working. The real question is, why does it sometimes seem like he isn't? Well, because of weeds and rocks and birds. In this parable, the seed is constantly working. Even the ones that fall amongst the rocks do the work of seeds and sprout. The rocks just keep the fruit from, from happening. Even the ones that grow up in the, amongst the thorns grow. The life is just sucked out of them. As the son of a tobacco farmer, I am uniquely qualified to expound on this. <laughs> I've spent lots of time in fields, and some of my earliest memories of farm life were dealing with the problems of weeds and rocks. As a young boy, I would follow behind my dad's tractor as he drove through the field, and before we planted anything, we would pick up rocks, throw in the back of the trailer, so that when we did plant, you know, the plants would, would thrive. After we planted, I would go through the field and I would pull weeds. A lot of time in my childhood was spent pulling weeds so that plants might survive. But here's the thing with farming. You can't pull all the weeds. There are rocks so deep that they're unseen. There's disease that kills plants. Bugs that eat everything. And when you're in the field, it can be very discouraging. Sections where the plants are barely growing, where the leaves are riddled with holes, places where weeds have completely taken over. When you're in the field, all you notice is the place where life is being sucked away. As a youth minister, I spend a lot of time in the field, so to speak, field of ministry, helping our young people who are surrounded by weeds that want to strangle the work of Christ from producing fruit in their lives. Uh, living in a different, these students live in a diff, difficult world that has produced rocks that uh, has made them fearful. And, and they wonder, where is God? There's evil that tells lies. And as a youth minister, I try to do the same work of pulling weeds and getting rid of rocks and encouraging, uh, encouraging young people. And it can be very discouraging. And I know that all of you feel this as you parent your children and as you live in relationships with family members, that the brokenness, the darkness, sometimes feels too much. Because when you're in the middle of the field, that's what you see. But here's the thing. When you step out of the field, and you look at it from the road, Everything changed. 
as a kid, when we would pull up to the farm before we were in the field, what you see is a vibrant field full of life. You don't see those places where disease is taken over. You don't see those places where the plants are so small and dying. You see a fruitful field. And I think this is why Jesus gives the second parable of the sower. His disciples were going to be doing the hard work of ministry, the work of taking care of weeds and rocks. And Jesus knew it would be discouraging. Jesus knew that it would seem like God wasn't doing anything, that sin was winning. They would certainly believe that when they saw their Savior being led to a cross. And I think this is why Jesus gives the second parable of the sower. And I think it's the same parable, just told in a different way. I think Jesus wanted the disciples to take a step back and look at the field in a different perspective. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Do you see the difference between these two parables? They are both about a seed that is working to bring about fruit. The first one gets in the field, and you deal with all the places where things aren't going right. The second one is more mysterious. The seed is planted, and the earth produces fruit. There is a hope in that parable. It's, it's a mystery, but it's hopeful. The kingdom grows for one reason, because the kingdom has been planted. And we can trust that even in a world where it seems like sin is winning, that God's kingdom will come. We can trust that the end of the story is redemption, reconciliation. And my encouragement to you is to embrace the mystery. Embrace the mystery that is God is at work in a world that seems to be falling apart. There's so many mysteries that we embrace as the church for our young people. You better remember some of them after years of pounding them in. You better remember the mystery of that the kingdom of God is upside down and backwards from what we believe. The mystery that it's better to forgive uh, than to hold on to hate. The mystery that is better to love. Uh, the mystery of, of the narrow path to freedom. Um, there's so much mystery that we as the church embraces. But the one that's the most important is the mystery of a seed that was sown into this world that went all the way down in death on the cross and came out of the other side in resurrection.
And that's it. That's the most important one. If you remember anything else, remember that Christ has defeated death. That any amount of brokenness that we will go through in this world, that brokenness does not go deeper than his resurrection. And as Jamie and I, sorry, as we embrace the mystery that is leaving a place that we really love, it is, it is in hope that God will continue to do his good work here. And he will do it through the lives of young people like the folks that have been leading today. And he will do it through you. And as hard as it is to leave, we are so thankful that we've gotten to be a part of this. And as we step into the unknown, we do so with hope. And again, it's the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the God that is restoring all things, and the hope of the God that is bringing about his kingdom here and now. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you are the good God, the seed that was sown. And Lord, I pray that even though it seems like you're not at work, I pray that we, were, we might remember that you are. And that in that hope, we might live our lives differently that we might live our lives with joy, peace, kindness, goodness, holiness, righteousness. And I pray that in doing so, we might be a light in this dark world, that others might come to know your great love. We pray all this in your holy, holy name. Amen.